Hello, friends, and welcome to the podcast. This episode is sponsored by the Gugu Mattress Company. Super comfortable and very affordable. Nothing better than a great night's sleep with a Gugu Mattress. Discount codes available later in the podcast. Greetings, everyone. This episode, we get to learn about food and beverage innovation with Ugo Bataya, the co-founder and CEO of Gourmet Pro. It's a startup which has been successful in their first year without any real efforts on sales and marketing. An amazing story. Gourmet Pro began as a consulting company for food and beverage-related Japan market entry. Once this demand became too big to sustain, they pivoted to a model focusing on sustainability, plant and cell-based foods, and food and beverage innovation, all while using a network of over 20 expert consultants. This is a fascinating topic with huge opportunities in a niche market. And you will hear all about this from Ugo, as well as the top three market entry mistakes foreign companies often make, We talk about cell-based meat, insect protein, and even review Dotour's soy meat burger. Spoiler alert, it doesn't suck. I learned a lot about food innovation, and I'm sure you will too. Direct from Tokyo, this is Now in Zen with Ugo Bataya. I have a business idea that I think is going to be a home run in Japan, but nobody's done it, and I don't know why I'm going to ask your advice. In the U.S., Cheesecake Factory, extremely popular with Japanese. Yeah. Why doesn't the Cheesecake Factory drop ship their 50 different flavors of cheesecakes into Japan? That's a good question, right? Even like Starbucks, that's one of the big hits. They have the cheesecake. It's always there. Couldn't Cheesecake Factory just set up a website in Japanese, localize it all, and say, hey, order your caramel, peanut butter crust, cheesecake, and we'll ship it to you FedEx, frozen, it'll arrive in five days. I'd rather set up some operations in Japan. Like, it doesn't have to be big, though. Can't you ship frozen foods internationally pretty easy? Yeah, but it would be pretty expensive. Well, how much is a cheesecake going to cost? I mean, if you buy it in the U.S., a whole cheesecake. I don't know. I think it's around thirty dollars. Double it. Yeah, that's six thousand yen for a whole but cheesecake from dollars. Cheesecake Factory. Actually, that would be more than thirty dollars, to be honest. Like, Is it? Oh, so you're saying it would cost th- more than thirty bucks just to air freight it? To I Japan. think so. Yeah, you could definitely send a bunch, like as an experiment. Try to sell it as a dark store. A dark store. What does that mean? There's a new trend. So dark kitchen, like ghost kitchens. Yes. Some, some food delivery comes from ghost kitchens. It's not a real yes. restaurant, but their website, their brochures, it makes it look like they're a restaurant, yeah. but it's actually just a, a, kitchen a kitchen that makes the food for 100% delivery. That's, a, that's what we call a ghost kitchen. Yes, exactly. So for me, that, that's what also in terms of trends is really interesting right now. So you could, instead of invest in the whole flagship, just get to work with an operator, at I least see. as an experiment, and work on more like the digital aspect. Do a, a big campaign, try that and see if it works. Yeah, I like your idea better. Yeah. Most cheesecake flavors are way too sweet for yeah. the Japanese palate. Going back to your idea yeah. of creating a ghost kitchen distribution, you find out what the top 10 flavors. 
and then you ship over a few hundred exactly. of each, and then you just distribute them out of your ghost distribution. First, I would maybe do organize some focus group just to try flavors with people and see what's their first right. reaction. Costco does sell Cheesecake Factory cheesecakes, but just the, the standard cheesecake, cheesecake. I was about to say that like, Costco is also a great place to try things that are different flavors because people who go there, they expect different flavors. The, the shop itself is exactly the same, but the experience, people who go there are more like, it's a whole like, go to a resort. It's an exotic place where you find products which are weird, America. It's, it's America kind of thing, right? And yeah, it's, it's a really interesting mix of local products and overseas yeah. products and crazy stuff. Exactly, yeah. That's part of the experience, right? When I talk with people, Costco is more about the experience yes. than the actual products. Welcome to the podcast, Ugo Bataya. Thank you. You are the founder and CEO of Gourmet Pro. I am. A food and beverage consulting company. This business category seems like a really big market opportunity, but also very niche at the same time. Oh uh, yeah, completely. It was really hard to find food and beverage consultants. The structure or brand even of a consulting in the food and beverage industry, really couldn't find one. And now we, we try to even go a bit nicher <laughs> by focusing on innovation and sustainability. We're not even content enough about our <laughs> niche. <laughs> well, your business model has pivoted recently, but you started off helping overseas companies enter the Japan market by pairing them with local experts and consultants. So you don't actually handle products yourself. You're yeah. only a go-in-between. Is this how it works? Yes. When we started, we did the consulting ourselves because we were trying to understand all the challenges of uh, the market entry and the food and beverage, especially in Japan. But myself, I'm not from the food and beverage industry. So I never wanted to build a consulting agency. I wanted to build something a bit more product-like because I'm from software. So after a year of doing the consulting, we managed to get enough inbound clients to be at capacity without doing any sales or marketing. Nice. Yeah. How did, you, how did you find clients so quickly as a startup? Just LinkedIn. Like, again, we were so niche that people would look for Japan food and beverage and they would find us on LinkedIn or find our website. And, really? Yeah. And really no effort. We put one article around like regulations and then it ranked first. <laughs> because there was no uh, other articles like this. Yeah, I read that article. It's on your blog, right? Yeah, yeah, it's on our blog, yeah. So we, we just had this website with a really simplistic blog first. When we did the, the switch to the pivot, like from consulting agency to more like a network of independent consultant and the matching, Yes. since I also wanted the brand to be not just agency boutique, but more innovation platform, I launched like a newsletter called Market Shake. And this one is really focused on innovation. Market shake. Market shake. And on that one, we really went all in into like the production. It's one article every week and there is cycles. Right now we're in the insect food cycle. In the past yeah. we did plant-based, we did no low alcohol. And the next one is gonna be about upcycle food. Upcycle. Yeah. Reusing the waste into making new foods. First that was really just this inbound thing, then too much work, <laughs> then let's pivot to scale. And when we pivoted, we got a lot, um, like a higher range of skills now, because we got consultants from a, a lot of places. Right. So instead of just focusing on the market entry, 
now we do a bunch of things. Like innovation, sustainability, product formulation, uh, market entry we still do. And even some marketing campaigns sometimes. They're really simple stuff. Congratulations. Thank you. Cheers to that. <laughs> you mentioned you have a lot of independent consultants yeah. that are part of your team. Yeah. Do you have a couple scientists? We, we have people who are... Uh, specialist in product additives and flavors for example who worked at big flavor companies so those can really help like in formulations of drinks or some things like this we also have more in general culinary experts that would help more like creating products but not necessarily at the technical level more at the taste flavor level let's say wow you mentioned your background is in software yeah your japan career has been in digital telecom logistics software even hr yeah why did you decide to move to food and beverage, number one? And number two, how did you get up to speed on all this new stuff with sustainability and alternative plant-based foods, alternative proteins, cell-based, etc.? So first, even though I was in software, right, I'm used to change industry. In the software, you can work in any industry. And like you said, HR, logistics. So each time I had to learn quickly the business Right? and to understand like how I can translate those challenges into solution, software solutions. So for me, it's not new. Why I went for food? So when I was in logistics company, I met this guy, Vincent, who was my co-founder, who was getting out of Molson Coors and becoming a consultant. Molson Coors, the beer company. Yeah, and he actually contacted me on LinkedIn about, hey, you're doing something cool in logistics and you're French, let's talk. And we talked about the, it was in 2019, and there was the EPA at the time, so a treaty between Europe and Japan. Yeah. And some big players like Eon really used that discount. Eon, the supermarket chain. Yeah, yeah, yeah supermarket, yeah. They're, with like direct import. They're sourcing themselves, they're importing themselves. So combining like re removing the middleman and the discount of duty, they really cut down prices on wine, cheese, you know, premium product from uh, Europe. Vincent was like, hey, maybe you could target uh, regional retails because there's 100 chains of retails in Japan. It's really fragmented. Who don't have the capacity for direct sourcing or the logistics part and propose something like an import department as a service. Nice. I was like, damn, that's a great idea. Yeah. <laughs> Why didn't I think of that? Yeah, because I was not from that food and beverage industry. Yeah. And I was like, all right, I want to do something around this feels like there is an opportunity here. So I just came out of the logistics part and I knew it was a pain. So I was like, maybe I should focus on the sourcing part and finding logistics partner. So the first idea of Gourmet Pro actually was not even consulting. It was a business matching platform, like sourcing a lot of small producers, gems. You could like, it would be hard to find in Europe and propose them to um, retails in Japan and find logistics partner to do the logistics part. But instead of building it right away, which would have done like maybe 10 years ago when I was younger, I went and I interviewed people. I went to trade shows. I even like, we went to Kagoshima, like uh, visit some farmers and stuff. And we realized there was a lot of different challenges to the import. First, yeah, there's a localization problem. You have regulations problem. You have just logistics issues. The market entry consulting part is straightforward the logistics, the product strategy, the distribution, isn't that the biggest challenge? So what do, you, what do you mean by the consulting part? 
there's a company, let's say, in France yeah. that wants to export their cheese to Japan. So you would start with a checklist, probably. Here yeah. are the do's, here are the don'ts, here are the regulations, this is what you should do. Yeah, yeah. You open the door to Japan for them, but yeah. once they walk in that door, yeah. that's where all the challenges start. That's what I mean. When I mean consulting, like we actually do that. <laughs> okay. We go the step further, like and our consultant will prepare all the documents for the regulations, for example, for the import. When there is for the ingredients to change because of those regulations, our consultant will also find which ingredient would work and not. For the branding too, we would actually do organize some focus groups, check the data. We, yeah, we do go a step further than just saying do. Do this or do not. Don't do this. <laughs> right. Okay. So you're a little bit more than just uh, a go in between. But even like finding a distributor, it's really hard when you're outside Japan because nobody speaks English. Even then, you need somebody who can understand the culture. So that's also part of the consulting. Food trends in Japan come and go very quickly. Pancakes. There was bubble tea. Macarons. From France. Yeah. I remember when Eggs Benedict was a boom, <laughs> and we developed a pot just for cooking poached eggs. True story. By the time it arrived in Japan, the boom was over, and we hardly <laughs> sold any of these Eggs Benedict pans. Why do food trends come and go so quickly in Japan? Because people love gente, the limited trends here. Like that's why Kit Kat like has I don't know 20 flavors a year. More, <laughs> yeah, probably. I don't know. And that's also why we don't focus on it too much because we know that the time for, especially on market entry, the time to enter the market is going to be way longer than the fad. Yeah, like, like me <laughs> with the eggs Benedict pan. Yeah. In terms of regulations, is it getting easier or more difficult to import food and beverage into Japan? I don't think it's changing a lot. It's just staying quite difficult. Regulations in Japan takes decades to change. It's really hard in general, but nowadays the change is coming is more around new things. For example, we have a project around probiotics, drinks like kombucha and things. Like, can you import them in Japan? Is there ways? CBD? Yeah, or when you think further, like what about cell-based food? For example, when cell-based meat or milk. What does that mean, cell-based milk, cell-based meats? So, in the meat innovation, right, you have different technologies. First, you have plant-based. So, you just try to get something similar to meat, with a taste similar to meat and feel similar to meat by using plants. That's one. Then you have the process of creating the protein inside the meat through fermentation. So, you use yeast or mushrooms in order to create the protein and then you rearrange them into something that would be like meat. So, that's closer to meat. And the last step, is to actually grow cells. You take cells from the cow and then you grow a muscle. And that's actually real meat in a way, right? This is as close as you can get. And for, for milk, you would just grow mammal cells that would produce milk. And that would be exactly the same milk as the normal milk. And, and you could think about any animal, even human milk in a way, because you could get those cells wow. and produce. Dairy alternatives have mm. been very popular recently. Of course, in yeah. Japan, you have soy milk, there's almond milk, oat milk yeah. is becoming popular yeah. as well. That's just plants, a replacement, right? but it's not the same product. It tastes similar, but it's not the same. Regulations <laughs> aside, for most foreign foodstuff, the distribution is limited. 
There's Seijo Ishii, Kinokuniya, Shinanoya, Nishin, National. There are only a handful of specialty supermarkets which handle foreign food and beverages. On top of this, you have import duties, transportation costs, you need to use a wholesaler. So the margins have to be small. Where is the big opportunity? That's a tough question. It really depends on the category, right? That's one of the biggest mistakes of people who just try to enter. They don't even think like of making a price structure from FOB to retail. They don't think about that, right? So there's like, oh, let's try a distributor and, and see how it goes. No, we yeah. need to find out, okay, how much we'll, we'll be able to sell at which, at which price? Compared to the competition, where does it go? Like, is it going to be like twice the price? Is it going to be 30%? And depending on which, you would choose the channel. Yeah, there's not a turnkey solution right here. It's really depending on the category, depending on what you manage to get as an initial price. And then I think it's all about finding the right route to market. But most foodstuffs, the price points are quite small. Cookies, whether it's crackers, you know, fruits and vegetables, you're talking a few hundred yen. For cheaper things, I would not recommend to go like for the basic staple foods. You won't compete and there's no point. Maybe at Costco, because they have direct sourcing strategy and they have low margin. Actually, that's a strategy for some big players because yeah. they handle big volumes. For some, that's actually the right strategy. I've had friends who have imported wine into Japan and they have told me horror stories huh? of the challenges to find distribution. And once they do, yeah. the margins are so tiny, yeah. it's not worth it. Agree? <laughs> for wine, Depending on your class, it's not relevant. Especially now, like you have 7-Eleven, they have their own white label board of wine. So they they can like cut prices there. Yeah. So your competition, and yeah, the competition is not even the same compared to 10 years ago. Sure. Well, you mentioned that Eon is doing direct import. Yeah, that too, and yeah. that's very interesting. And now yeah. you mentioned 7-Eleven has private label. Yeah, it's like Bordeaux. Yeah. yeah, so things are changing when yeah. it comes to imported foods and beverages. Yeah, and wine especially is really a saturated market. That's why it's also really hard. Even for us, when we go for wine, we have a wine specialist that has its own network of both importers and aficionados, right? wine uh, experts, right. who will try new wines and maybe like go to the food service part, right. restaurants. But going for retail right away is hard. When consulting, you must have a basic checklist of things to avoid, common mistakes that overseas brands often make when trying to enter the Japanese market. Because I used to work for an American company yeah. here in Japan. We would sometimes receive a pallet shipment from the US and the pallet would be wrapped in a kind of tape. And when you remove this tape, yeah. it would peel off some of the outer cardboard oh, box. Oh my God. Not the actual product packaging, just the brown shipping box. Yep. Our distributor complained about this and requested extra shipping boxes so they could repackage before sending to the customer. The reason being, even in Japan, the shipping box is considered part of the product. Whereas the American head office had the attitude, it was just a shipping box and it was going to be thrown away anyway. So what difference does it make? 
I'm sure there must be numerous similar examples, but what are some common faux pas, see, it's French, <laughs> you often see in your business? I think the first thing that you should do before even starting anything is to do your price structure, to actually see how much you can sell in Japan. Because that will tell you, is it possible or not? If you end up three times the price of the competition, don't even try. So that would be the first thing, like, do your homework or let somebody help you do that homework but don't say like I need a distributor he's my product he's my price can't the distributor or the wholesaler or even the retailer in Eon's case couldn't they just work backwards yeah but usually they don't spend the time so you should spend the time I mean they have tons of products so you're just one of the guys right okay so And pricing is one yeah, common okay. mistake what else quality quality is big big in Japan Companies who are, they're really successful in their own country, for example, but then they enter Japan and they're like, you know, we know everything, we're pretty good, our product is amazing. And then they don't realize, for example, even the packaging is a bit bumped, or maybe like there is 1% damaged goods because for them it's reasonable. Whereas in Japan, okay, we'll just return this pallet or container even. We found one carton out of a hundred that had, was damaged. So you do yeah. the inspection. Exactly. Like, yeah, I've been there, done that. But actually, like, there's also some opportunities sometimes for you to improve your production line. The example of uh, a company that was making cheese that was wrapped into some kind of wax, but they actually had problem with the ceiling and maybe 5% of the products would go bad. Because the wax wasn't completely airtight. Yeah, or something like this, right? So the Japanese were like, no, we won't take this product, like 5%, it's not good. They did the work of improving it, and actually in the end, they improved the product even in, in France, actually. So if you're willing to go through that, then that's worth it. If you like do the work and then people complain about your quality and you're like, no, we're good enough, this is going to be a waste of time. And... I think the last one is chasing fads. Chasing fads. <laughs> Again, they go so fast. I would not encourage that. So, yeah. Don't take this the wrong way. How much of what you do yeah. is just participating in the Foodex trade show and searching for potential customers, contacts, and partners for your business? The reason I ask is I used to love to go to Foodex. Yep. And, and get all the samples. <laughs> <laughs> and we're going, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's so much fun because there are so many countries that are represented there. And yeah. they're all looking for market entry, distribution. And I know that you've pivoted, but you still do market entry, yeah, obviously. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That must be a goldmine of potential new clients, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Especially the first three months when we started it, and we, it was all about research. That was all we, we, we were doing, right? And we went to all the local cafés, for example. There's another exhibition. Probably a Horika specialist, one yes. that specializes in hotels, restaurants, the professional channel. Exactly, yeah. yeah, yeah. So, yeah, more like the on-trade, like for alcohol. And that's actually why we went to Kagoshima. At one of those trade shows, we met the Chamber of Commerce of Kagoshima, and they were saying, oh, you should come, and we'll, we will introduce you to local producers. And we went there and went on a road trip, basically, around Kagoshima nice. and interviewed people. So, yeah, I mean, at the beginning, it was really just about that. We all know getting a great sleep is important, and this is what Gugu is all about. Super comfortable mattresses at very affordable prices and delivered to your home for free. 
they back up their best sleep ever promise with a 100-night money-back guarantee. Learn more at gugu.jp and enter the coupon code ZEN for your 20% discount. Gugu, better sleep, better you. Over the past year, you have pivoted your business model to a platform of independent consultants, not limited to market entry, but also support local companies and strategies for new food technology and sustainability. Why did you pivot away from market entry to this new model? First, the model itself. I didn't want to be a consultant. Well, for me, it was just a way to learn the industry. And that's maybe to answer the second question before, right? You were asking me, like, how do I know so much? It's because I, I did the job, right? And myself, and I really tried to understand all the issues, understand the new technologies. I'm fascinated by innovation, so that's why I'm also, like, studying this. My idea is to build a startup more than a, a boutique agency. So I was trying to look at what could be a more scalable business model. That's a good point. At the time, I was fascinated by TopTal. By what? TopTal. What's that? TopTal is for software, finance, and many software. They have the top 3% of all the engineers in the world. That's what they say. And they place them as independent consultants. So I said, I'll do the same, but for the food and beverage industry. Okay. And start with Japan. So really similar business model and see, all right, can I scale as much as them, you know, that, that would be the idea. I saw on your website you have about nine consultants already, or do you have more? We do have more. Right now we, have, we reach like more than 20. What is your pitch to them? You say, I'm Ugo from Gourmet Pro. I want you to be a consultant for my company. Why should they say yes? What's in it for them? All right, the first thing we tell them is you choose your hourly rate. Whatever, if you take your own clients or you take Gourmet Pro clients, you will get the same amount of money. And the second thing is we are trying to build a brand for them. It's not just client one by one, so they can get a funnel of projects without having to chase clients. Also, we take care of all the invoicing, the payments. So again, they don't have to chase the customers for the payments. And we're trying to build a community so they don't feel alone. For example, for some people who are already experienced consultants, that's not an issue. But for people who just want to start, it feels way less scary to start with somebody to back them up. But a lot of these consultants, aren't they already working for a company? Or are they independent already? It depends. We have a bit of everything. For example, we have a whole category of consultants who are early retirees. They just retired. They are like, I want to keep working. And I still want to have a business card. In Japan, work is a lot, your job is a lot a part of your identity. Give me an example of a couple of the consultants. What's their background? You say, this is perfect for my business because you specialize in X, Y, and Z. I'm trying to think about what I can say, what I cannot say. The background, of course, the first requirement is food and beverage. That's simple. And we don't take junior people. It's usually average 10 towards 15 years. The second thing is they have to be bilingual because we deal mainly with Gaishke. Foreign affiliated companies. Yep. Like, what are their expertise? I mean, probably you have somebody that's a specialist in market entry. Maybe you have somebody who's a specialist in sustainability. Maybe you have somebody who's a specialist in distribution of food and beverages, etc. In terms of expertise, we have like brand managers, for example. Like for the marketing, we try to get people who were brand manager of, for example, at Molson Coors for a particular brand or even at Coca-Cola or other brands like this. 
digital marketing, that's a bit more people who have experience with the digital world. Business development, people who have a great experience at big corporations that deal with a lot of the distribution. For example, sales account manager at Mitsubishi Shokuhin, people who can open doors. Is your proposition to these consultants, is it a hard sell? Is it difficult? No, because we don't ask any exclusivity. They choose their pricing and we just provide them clients and support. So for them, it's all (laughs) win-win. You mentioned Gourmet Pro is putting a lot of emphasis on emerging categories. Plant-based food, alcohol-free beverages, alternative protein foods. Is this because it's a trend? You want to corner this market? or you feel it's a moral obligation? Uh, I'm really interested in innovation. If I were more pragmatic, all those emerging trends are still really small. And actually that doesn't translate in our current customer base. Most of our customers are not really into cell-based meat or anything, right? Because there's no market yet. Even plant-based is, even though it grows really fast, it's still really small in Japan. Tiny. So for me, it's more about I'm seeing the future and I'm really interested in innovation. That gives me opportunity to talk with really interesting people and in the future, hopefully, have some kind of activity which will be more around helping startups entering Japan or partnering with Japanese companies. Anything that could really support that innovation to enter the Japanese market. Interesting. So you really have pivoted from the consulting and ventured into innovation. Exactly. So all the time I don't have to spend on the execution of consulting. Now I can spend on the branding, the new activities, even content. So right now, like we have this newsletter, right? Yeah. But we're hiring somebody full time to expand our media arm into something bigger. Could be a podcast. (laughs) Could be more. Not sure yet, but that's the idea. (laughs) That's cool. So you mentioned your newsletter. Market Shake. Market Shake. You focus on some themes. Right now you're talking about insects, protein. Yeah. Before you were talking about non-alcoholic beverages. Yeah. Plant-based meat, insect protein, is it ever going to be a real deal? Plant-based meat is already quite big in Europe and the U.S., is it really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And in terms of both like market share and investment, there's tons of investment. A lot of people it. are investing in it. I don't hear or <laughs> see a lot of people talking about it or eating it. Really? Last time I was in the U.S., which was last year, yeah, I went to Whole Foods. Yeah. Right? Whole Foods, a lot yeah. of organic and natural foods there, right? Mm-hmm. Their impossible beef section was very small. It takes, even in Japan, it takes more from the food service industry first, where you have like all those plant-based Burger King, I think, where Impossible Foods is getting their meat. I would say even in retail, there was a news from France, right? One of the main retailers, I think there are four uh, big supermarkets, they started having like this plant-based bacon from this startup called Célavie, I think it's called. Célavie? Yeah, I think it's Lavie from Célavie. Even asked my mom, can you just buy it from Carrefour, you know, and just try it because it's there. So it feels like it is available to way more people now. It's available, but are people eating it? Is your mom eating La Vie? Yeah, of course not. I mean, not naturally right now, but I don't think it's it's targeted for that generation. Yeah. That's a <laughs> so, good point, yeah. Yeah, and yeah. you know, even like in Japan, 
even Eon has a, a lot of new like plant-based products. They, even like, Top Value has vegetative brands. And they are thinking all their sustainability, plant-based effort are for the next generation. They are thinking ahead. They are thinking like, they are thinking like 10 years in advance. Especially in Japan where you know, there's SDGs on, on the TV every day. Yeah. Yeah, like kids start asking about, oh, is this SDG? Oh, is this SDG? Right. Uh, so more and more of the population is getting... Yeah. It's a generation more. thing. Yeah. So, Have you yeah. ever had the soy meat burger yeah. at Dotour? Uh, no, not at Dotour, but I had soy meat burger before. Yeah. It's not bad. Yeah? I order it mostly because I kind of want to support that. But I have to be honest, I can't say that I, I'm ordering it over and over again because no. I think it's really delicious. It, it doesn't taste bad, yeah. but it's, it's, it doesn't taste like a hamburger. There, there are some, some ways that I've seen my wife, for example, incorporating soy-based with real meat. Okay. To kind of reduce the amount of meat but keep the flavor, yep. right? So there's this whole flexitarian movement where it's all about like reducing the amount of meat you ingest while trying to keep as much of the flavor and stuff. So I think that could also be a way for Japan yeah. because traditionally, what's interesting in Japan though is that they were not really eating a lot of meat Good point. before the war. And actually more meat came from the American influence. And now consumption of meat out uh, of the roof. Through the roof. Through the roof. I forgot it too. Uh, it's on the roof. <laughs> <laughs> the consumption of meat is through the roof. But before it, their diet was not really uh, meat-based. There is, I think, in, in Japan an opportunity to use the tradition, uh, soy-based things, and to just incorporate it. Even in our research, the main driver for plant-based diet or flexitarian diet was health and they want to take care of more of themselves and they're trying to think of ways of reducing their meat consumptions if you're smart enough you don't necessarily need to replace the meat you can be a complementary and for me like the insect i don't believe in selling insects like whole insects and eating them but you can make insect-based protein which will be way denser and amino acid profile which was way more wide higher protein content yeah. as well you can incorporate that into a plant-based alternative. Yeah. It's, it's an image problem, basically. Exactly. It's a exactly. PR issue. Exactly. <laughs> and that, that's what we saw like in our interviews, too. When you look at the Muji cracker with crickets inside, the only thing that tells you that there's a cricket is because they have this cricket logo on it. Right. And I would even like recommend it to remove that logo because maybe it would sell more. <laughs> what brought you here? Why did you become interested in Japan? Yeah. When I was at uni, I took Japanese lessons just because it was there. And I had my otaku phase, you know, geek phase uh, when I was in high school. And I was like, oh, there is actual Japanese language. Maybe I could... What was your otaku geek phase? Was it anime or manga or something manga, like that? Manga, even like some video games, Japanese video games. But, you know, that was a few years. And then when I was in uni, I was like, oh... Actually, maybe let's let's try to learn their language. It could be fun, but it was I was not really serious about it. But my sensei at the time was really adamant to push us to get an internship in Japan. So she keeps this alumni network. Alumni. Yeah, and through that I got an internship in Japan in Tokyo. What were you doing? So I was at Orange, which is like the telecommunication big French telecommunication company, and I was doing. They had a research lab at the time. How old were you? I was 21. And yeah, I, 
I arrived in Tokyo and I was kind of paid well enough for an internship to have a decent... A sh I was in a share house in the middle of Shibuya next to the womb, the nightclub. So it was really shitty <laughs> share house. Uh, like my, my room it felt like, like a big toilet in terms of size. <laughs> I had a mattress and a small desk and a rack. But no toilet. No, no toilet, of course. <laughs> <laughs> but it felt like a toilet. It, yeah. <laughs> and I spent six months in the middle of Shibuya with amazingly crazy people. I was coming from a software engineering school with only like male software engineers, right? This is basically what you get. And I arrived there. I remember like I arrived in the morning around 10. I slept. I go to the common room around, I think it was 6 p.m. And there were two guys and like, Hey, who are you? I'm like, hey, I'm Hugo and stuff. They're like, okay, cool. Do you want to go to a nightclub tonight? We're on the guest list. Yeah, we are both DJs. And I was like, what? <laughs> one guy from Australia, one guy from London. So I discovered a whole new world, right? I was like, for me, it was blowing my mind in terms of culture, people I met, and Tokyo when you're 20, 21. It's amazing. I really love the life here and I just contacted Orange again say hey internship was nice could I have a job and I got the job and since then I'm here so I've always worked in Japan do you have a favorite Japanese word that's very culturally unique in that maybe it doesn't have a direct English or maybe even French translation so it's not a word but it's the chatta Yachata, which means uh, I did it like I made a mistake or I did something wrong but you can apply it to any verb and with kids especially and I have two kids it's always yeah. so I made a mistake yeah but you need to add the chatta kind of feel yeah. like it's a cute mistake yeah you're right you can apply it to any verb so we're drinking beers right now you could say Nonjata. Yeah. Drank it by mistake. Yeah, I drank it all. Sorry. Yeah. Or I, I drank it before we started Kampai, you know, or something yes. like that. Yeah, yeah well, that's a really good example. It's something that you add to a verb to indicate that you messed up doing whatever that verb is. And it, they all have those nuances of, yeah. it's the same meaning, but you add a feeling Shimatta to it. Shimatta is the same thing. Chatta yeah. is the, Contract. the contraction of shimatta, like yeah, yeah. nonde shimaimashita. Interesting, I like that one. Anything else? Any other words? Yeah, words. A another one I like is zannen. Unfortunate. Yeah, it's... It's more than that. It's really hard for me to say. It could be regret, I'm sorry, it could be many things. Phonetically, it sounds nice too, zannen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What is your future dream for Gourmet Pro? So my future dream for Gourmet Pro is first on the scale itself is to target all markets in the world, have consultants a bit everywhere and be able to even do like project would be multi-countries. That would be amazing. And as a personal dream, what I want to do is really find ways to get even more involved in the innovation, innovation part of the business, right? Really like help startups in any ways of I, I can, either through funding, through support, through acceleration, to just disseminate this technology. Because for me, the, the last felt like the when the, I entered the market, like the food tech world really boomed. And there was like, now there's tons of funding in the new technologies that are appearing. And it's really interesting. And I don't know, I just want to be part of it. 
Ugo, thank you very much. I love your new business. Thank you. Uh, I'm uh, impressed at the success that you've had, even with the, the market entry. You could still continue <laughs> doing that. But the innovation, I think, really is where the future is. Yeah. And uh, I love the discussion that we had. So thank you very much for coming on the podcast today. Thank you for inviting me. It was a great pleasure. Cheers. Cheers. And that was Ugo Bataya, co-founder and CEO of Gourmet Pro. As you heard, he is really on the cutting edge of food and beverage innovation. To learn more about Gourmet Pro and to sign up for their latest trends newsletter, Market Shake, go to their excellent website at gourmetpro.co. If you would like to hear more conversations like this one, check out nowandzen.jp or just search Now and Zen Japan on all the podcast platforms like iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, and more. Thanks for listening. We'll catch you next time. Bye, everyone.